Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Tonight, part four of Stefan Zweig's story, The Burning Secret. Commenting on this novella, Nicholas Lazard wrote in The Guardian, One wonders what they were putting into the water in Vienna a century or so ago to produce people with such a capacity to enter into the human soul and then render it into art or analysis. Around the time Zweig published this, Freud was writing on narcissism, and there are moments here when you marvel at the psychological accuracy and plausibility of Zweig's characters. See if you don't agree as we come to the conclusion of The Burning Secret. Chapter 13. Dawning Perception After he had put a long stretch of road between him and the hotel, Edgar stopped running. He was panting heavily, and he had to lean against a tree to get his breath back and recover from the trembling of his knees. The horror of his own deed, from which he had been fleeing, clutched at his throat and shook him as with a fever. What should he do now? Where should he run away to? He was already feeling a sinking sensation of loneliness there in the woods, only a mile or so from the house. Everything seemed different, unfriendlier, unkinder, now that he was alone and helpless. The trees that only the day before had whispered to him like brothers now gathered together darkly, as if in threat. The solitariness of the great unknown world dazed the child. No, he could not stand alone yet. But to whom should he go? Of his father, who was easily excited and unapproachable, he was afraid. Besides, his father would send him straight back to his mother, and Edgar preferred the awfulness of the unknown to that. He felt as though he could never look upon his mother's face again without remembering that he had struck her with his fist. His grandmother in Baden occurred to him. She was so sweet and kind, and had always petted him and come to his rescue when, at home, he was to be the victim of an injustice. He would stay with her until the first storm of wrath had blown over, and then he would write to his parents to ask their forgiveness. In this brief quarter of an hour he had already been so humbled by the mere thought of his inexperienced self standing alone in the world that he cursed the stupid pride that a mere stranger's lying had put into him. He no longer wanted to be anything but the child he had been, obedient and patient, and without the arrogance that he now felt to be excessive. But how to reach Baden? He took out his little pocket-book and blessed his lucky star that the ten-dollar gold piece given to him on his birthday was still there, safe and sound. He had never got himself to break it. Daily he had inspected his purse to see if it was there, and to feast his eyes on the sight of it and gratefully polish it with his handkerchief until it shone like a tiny sun. But would the ten dollars be enough? He had traveled by train many a time without thinking that one had to pay, and still less how much one paid, whether ten or a hundred dollars. For the first time he got an inkling that there were facts in life upon which he had never reflected, and that all the many things that surrounded him and he held in his hands and toyed with somehow contained a value of their own, a special importance. An hour before he thought he knew everything— now he realized he had passed by a thousand mysteries and problems without noticing them, and was ashamed that his poor little wisdom had stumbled over the first step it took into life. 
he grew more and more discouraged, and his footsteps lagged as he drew near the station. How often he had dreamed of this flight from home, of making a dash for the great life, becoming king or emperor, soldier or poet. And now he looked timidly at the bright little building ahead of him, and thought of nothing but whether his ten dollars would bring him to his grandmother at Baden. The rails stretched away monotonously into the country. The station was deserted. Edgar went to the window shyly, and asked, whispering so that nobody but the ticket-seller should hear, how much a ticket to Baden cost. Amused and rather astonished eyes behind spectacles smiled upon the timid child. "'Whole fare or half fare?' "'Whole fare,' stammered Edgar, utterly without pride. Three dollars and thirty-five cents. Give me a ticket, please.' In great relief, Edgar shoved the beloved bit of polished gold under the grating, change rattled on the ledge, and Edgar all at once felt immensely wealthy, holding the strip of colored paper that guaranteed him his liberty, and with the sound of coin clinking in his pocket. On examining the timetable, he found there would be a train in only twenty minutes, and he retired to a corner to get away from the people idling on the platform. Though it was evident they were harboring no suspicions, the child, as if his flight and his crime were branded on his forehead, felt that they were looking at nothing but him, and were wondering why a mere boy such as he should be traveling alone. He drew a great sigh of relief when at last the first whistle sounded in the distance, and the rumbling came closer and closer, and the train that was to carry him out into the great world puffed and snorted into the station. It was not until Edgar took his seat in the train that he noticed he had secured only a third-class passage. Having always traveled first-class, he was again struck with a sense of difference. He saw there were distinctions that had escaped him. His fellow-passengers were unlike those of his first-class trips, a few Italian laborers with tough hands and uncouth voices, carrying pickaxes and shovels. They sat directly opposite, dull and disconsolate-eyed, staring into space. They must have been working very hard on the road, for some of them slept in the rattling coach, open-mouthed, leaning against the hard, soiled wood. They have been working to earn money, came into Edgar's mind as he sat guessing how much they earned, but could not decide. And so another disturbing fact impressed itself upon him, that money was something one did not always have on hand, but had to be made somehow or other. And for the first time he became conscious of having taken the ease in which he had been lapped as a matter of course, and to the right and the left of him abysses yawned, which his eyes had never beheld. It came to him now with the shock of suddenness that there were trades and professions, that his life was hedged about by innumerable secrets, close at hand and tangible, though he had never noticed them. Edgar was learning a good deal in that single hour of aloneness, and saw many things as he looked out of the narrow compartment into the great wide world, and for all his dark dread, something began to unfold itself gently within him, not exactly happiness as yet, rather a marveling at the diversity of life. He had fled, he felt, out of fear and cowardice, yet it was his first independent act, and he experienced something of the reality that he had passed by until then without heeding it. Perhaps he himself was now as much of a mystery to his mother and father 
as the world had been to him. It was with different eyes that he looked out of the window. He was now viewing actualities, it seemed to him. A veil had been lifted from all things, and they were showing him the core of their purpose, the secret spring of their actions. Houses flew by as though torn away by the wind, and he pictured to himself the people living in them. Were they rich or poor, happy or unhappy? Were they filled with the same longing as he to know everything? And were there children in those houses like himself, who had merely been playing with things? The flagmen who waved the train no longer seemed like scattered dolls, inanimate objects, toys stationed there by indifferent chance. Edgar now understood that the giving of the signal was their fate, their struggle with life. The wheels turned faster and faster, along serpentine windings the train made its way downward from the uplands, the mountains took on gentler curves and receded into the distance. The level was reached, and Edgar gave one final glance backward. There were the mountains like blue shadows, remote and inaccessible. And to Edgar it was as though his childhood were reposing up there where they lightly merged with the misty heavens. Chapter 14 Darkness and Confusion When the train pulled into the station at Baden, the street lamps were already lit, and though the station was bright with its red and white and green signals, Edgar unexpectedly felt a dread of the approaching night. In the daytime he would still have been confident. People would have been thronging the streets, and you could sit down on a bench and rest, or look into the shop windows. But now, would he be able to stand it, when the people had all withdrawn into their homes and gone to bed for a peaceful night's sleep, while he, conscious of wrongdoing, wandered about alone in a strange city. Just to have a roof over his head, not to spend another moment under the open heavens, that was his one distinct feeling. He hurried along the familiar way without looking to right or left until he reached his grandmother's villa. It was on a beautiful broad avenue, placed not free to the gaze of passers-by, but behind the vines and shrubbery and ivy of a well-kept garden, a gleam behind a cloud of green, a white, old-fashioned, friendly house. Edgar peeped through the iron grill like a stranger. No sound came from within, and the windows were closed. Evidently the family and guests were in the garden behind the house. Edgar was about to pull the doorbell when something odd occurred. Suddenly the thing that only a few hours before had seemed quite natural to him had now become impossible. How was he to go into the house? How meet his grandmother and her family? How endure all the questions they would besiege him with, and how answer them? How would he be able to bear the looks they would give him when he would tell, as he would be obliged to, that he had run away from his mother? And how, above all, would he explain his monstrous deed, which he himself no longer understood? A door in the house slammed, and Edgar, in a sudden panic at being detected, ran off. When he reached the park, he paused. It was dark there, and he expected to find it empty, and thought it would be a good place to sit down in and rest, and at last reflect quietly and come to some understanding with himself about his fate. He passed through the gateway timidly, 
A few lamps were burning near the entrance, giving the young leaves on the tree a ghostly gleam of transparent green. But deeper in the park, down the hill, everything lay like a single black fermenting mass in the darkness. Edgar, eager to be alone, slipped past the few people who were sitting in the light of the lamps, talking or reading. But in the deep shadows of the unilluminated pathways it was not quiet. There were low whisperings that seemed to shun the light, sounds mingled with the rustling of the leaves, the scraping of feet, subdued voices, all mingled with a certain voluptuous, sighing, groaning sound that seemed to emanate from people and animals and nature, all in a disturbed sleep. It was a restlessness that had something foreboding in it, something sneaking, hidden, puzzling, a sort of subterranean stirring in the wood that was connected perhaps with nothing but the spring, yet had a peculiarly alarming effect upon the child. He cowered in a diminutive heap on a bench and tried to think of what he was to say at home. But his thoughts slipped away from him as on a slippery surface before he could grasp his own ideas, and in spite of himself he had to keep listening and listening to the muffled tones, the mystical voices of the darkness. How terrible the darkness was! How bewildering! And yet how mysteriously beautiful! Were they animals? Or people? Or was it merely the ghostly hand of the wind that wove together all this rustling and crackling and whirring? He listened. It was the wind gently moving the treetops. No, it wasn't. It was people. Now he could see distinctly. Couples, arm in arm, who came up from the lighted city to enliven the darkness with their perplexing presence. What were they after? He could not make out. They were not talking to each other because he heard no voices. All he could catch was the sound of their tread on the gravel, and here and there the sight of their figures, moving like shadows past some clear space between the trees, always with their arms around each other, like his mother and the baron in the moonlight. So the great dazzling portentous secret was here, too. Steps approached, a subdued laugh. Edgar, for fear of being discovered, drew deeper into the dark. But the couple now groping their way in the deep gloom had no eyes for him. They passed him by, closely locked, and they stopped only a few feet beyond his bench. They pressed their faces together. Edgar could not see clearly, but he heard a soft groan from the woman, and the man stammering mad, ardent words. A sort of sultry presentiment touched Edgar's alarm with a shudder that was sensual and pleasant. The couple stayed thus a minute or so, and then the gravel crunched under their tread again, and the sound of their footsteps died away in the darkness. A tremor went through Edgar. His blood whirled hot through his veins, and all of a sudden he felt unbearably alone in this bewildering darkness, and the need came upon him with elemental force for the sound of a friend's voice, an embrace, a bright room, people he loved. The whole perplexing darkness this night seemed to be inside his breast, rending it. He jumped up to be at home just to be at home, anywhere at home, in a warm, bright room, in some relation with people. What could happen to him then? Even if they were to scold and beat him, he would not mind all that darkness and the dread of loneliness. 
Unconsciously, he made his way back to his grandmother's villa and found himself standing with the cool doorbell in his hand again. Now, he observed, the lighted windows were shining through the foliage, and he pictured each room belonging to each window and the people inside. This very proximity of familiar things, the comforting sense of being near people who he knew loved him, was delightful, and if he hesitated, it was simply to taste this joy a little longer. Suddenly a terrified voice behind him shrieked, "'Edgar! Why, here he is!' It was his grandmother's maid. She pounced on him and grabbed his hand. The door was pulled open from within. A dog jumped at Edgar, barking. People came running, and voices of mingled alarm and joy called out. The first to meet Edgar was his grandmother with outstretched arms, and behind her, he thought he must be dreaming, his mother. Tears came to Edgar's eyes, and he stood amid this ardent outburst of emotions, quivering and intimidated, undecided what to say or do, and very uncertain of his own feelings. He was not sure whether he was glad or frightened. Chapter 15 The Last Dream They had been looking for him in Baden for some time. His mother, in spite of her anger, had been alarmed when he did not return, and had had search made for him all over Zemmering. The whole place was aroused, and people were making every sort of dreadful conjecture when a man brought the news that he had seen the child at the ticket office. Inquiry at the railroad station, of course, brought out that Edgar had bought a ticket to Baden, and his mother, without hesitation, took the very next train after him, telegraphing first to his father and to his grandmother. The family held on to Edgar, but not forcibly. On the contrary, they led him with an air of suppressed triumph into the front room, and how odd it was that he did not mind their reproaches, because he saw happiness and love in their eyes, and even their assumed anger lasted only a second or two. His grandmother was embracing him again tearfully. No one spoke of his bad conduct, and he felt the wondrousness of the protection surrounding him. The maid took off his coat and brought him a warmer one, and his grandmother asked if he did not want something to eat. They pestered him with their inquiries and their tenderness, but stopped questioning him when they noticed how embarrassed he was. He experienced deliciously the sensation he had so despised before of being wholly a child, and he was ashamed of his arrogance of the last few days when he had wanted to dispense with it all and exchange it for the deceptive joy of solitariness. The telephone rang in the next room. He heard his mother's voice in snatches. Edgar. Back. Got here. Last train and he marveled that she had not flown at him in a passion. She had put her arms around him with a peculiarly constrained expression in her eyes. He had begun to regret his conduct more and more, and he would have liked to extricate himself from his grandmother's and aunt's tenderness to run to his mother and beg her pardon and tell her by herself, oh so humbly, that he wanted to be a child again and obey her. But when he rose, with a perfectly gentle movement, his grandmother asked in alarm where he was going. He felt ashamed. If he made a single step, it frightened them. He had frightened them all terribly, and they were afraid he was going to run away again. How could he make them understand that nobody regretted his flight more than he did? 
The table was set, supper had been prepared for him hurriedly. His grandmother sat beside him without removing her eyes from him. She and his aunt and the maid held him fast in a quiet circle, the warmth of which calmed him wonderfully, and the only disturbing thought was that of his mother's absence from the room. If only she could have guessed how humble he was, she would certainly have come in. From outside came the sound of a cab drawing up at the door. Everyone gave a start, so that Edgar also was upset. His mother went out, he could hear loud voices in the hall, and then it struck him that it must be his father who had arrived. He observed timidly that he had been left alone in the room. To be alone, even for those few moments, made him nervous. His father was a stern man. He was the one person Edgar really feared. He listened. His father seemed to be excited. His voice was loud and expressed annoyance. Every now and then came his grandmother's and his mother's voices in mollifying tones, in attempts, evidently, to make him adopt a milder attitude. But his father's voice remained hard, hard as his foot-treads now coming nearer and nearer, and now stopping short at the door, which was next pulled violently open. The boy's father was a large man, and Edgar felt so very, very thin beside him as he entered the room, nervous and genuinely angry, it seemed. "'What got into your head to run away? How could you give your mother such a fright?' His voice was wrathful, and his hands made a wild movement. Edgar's mother came in and stood behind her husband, her face in shadow. Edgar made no reply. He felt he had to justify himself. But how tell the story of the way they had lied to him, and how his mother had slapped him? Would his father understand? "'Well, where's your tongue? What's the matter? You may tell me. You needn't be afraid. You must have had some good reason for running away. Did anyone do anything to you?' Edgar hesitated. At the recollection of the events in Summering, his anger began to flare up again, and he was about to bring his charge against his mother when he saw—his heart stood still—that she was making an odd gesture behind his father's back. At first he did not comprehend, but he kept his eyes fixed on her and noticed that the expression of her face was beseeching. Then, very, very softly, she lifted her finger to her mouth in sign that he should keep everything to himself. The child was conscious of a great wild joy pouring in a warm wave over his whole body. He knew she was giving him the secret to guard, and that a human destiny was hanging in the balance on his child's lips. Filled with a jubilant pride that she had reposed confidence in him, he suddenly became possessed by a desire for self-sacrifice. He magnified his own wrongdoing in order to show how much of a man he had grown to be. Collecting his wits, he said, "'No, no, there was no good reason for my running away. Mama was very kind to me, but I didn't behave myself, and I was ashamed, and so—and so I ran away.' The father looked at his son in amazement. Such a confession was the last thing he expected to hear. His wrath was disarmed. "'Well, if you're sorry, then it's all right, and we won't say any more about it today. You'll be careful in the future, though, 
not to do anything of the sort again. He paused and looked at Edgar, and his voice was milder as he went on. "'How pale you are, my boy! But I believe you have grown taller in this short while. I hope you won't be guilty of such childish behavior again, because, really, you're not a child any more, and you ought to be sensible.' Edgar, the whole time, had kept looking at his mother. Something peculiar seemed to be glowing in her eyes, or was it the reflection of the light? No, it was something new. Her eyes were moist, and there was a smile on her lips that said, Thank you to him. They sent him to bed, but he was not now distressed at being left alone. He had such a wealth of things to think over. All the agonies of the past days was dissipated by the tremendous sense of his first experience of life. He felt happy in a mysterious presentiment of future experiences. Outside, the trees were rustling in the gloomy night, but he was not scared. He had lost all impatience at having to wait for life now that he knew how rich it was. For the first time that day, it seemed to him, he had seen life naked, no longer veiled behind the thousand lies of childhood, he saw it in its complete, fearful, voluptuous beauty. Never had he supposed that days could be crowded so full of transitions from sorrow to joy and back again, and it made him happy to think that there were many more such days in store for him, and that a whole life was waiting to reveal its mystery to him. A first inkling had come to him of the diversity of life. For the first time, he thought, he understood men's beings, that they needed each other, even when they seemed to be inimical, and that it was very sweet to be loved by them. He was incapable of thinking of anything or anybody with hate. He regretted nothing, and had a sense of gratitude even to the baron, his bitterest enemy, because it was he who had opened the door for him to this world of dawning emotions. It was very sweet to be lying in the dark, thinking thoughts that were mingled vaguely with dreams and were lapsing almost into sleep. Was it a dream, or did Edgar really hear the door open and someone creep softly into his room? He was too sleepy to open his eyes and look. Then he felt a breath upon his face and the touch of another face, soft and warm and gentle against his, and he knew it was his mother who was kissing him and stroking his hair. He felt her kisses and her tears and responded to her caresses. He took them as reconciliation and gratitude for his silence. It was not many years later that he really understood these silent tears and knew that they were a vow of this woman verging on middle age to dedicate herself henceforth to her child and renounce adventure and all desire on her own behalf. They were a farewell. He did not know that she was thanking him for more than his silence. She was grateful that he had rescued her from a barren existence, and in these caresses was bequeathing him the bittersweet legacy of her love for his future life. Nothing of all this did the child lying there comprehend, but he felt it was blissful to be so loved, and that by this love he was already entangled in the great secret of the world. When she had withdrawn her hand from his head, and her lips from his lips, and with the light swish of her skirts had left the room, 
something warm remained behind, a breath upon Edgar's mouth, and a seductive longing came upon him to feel such lips upon his, and to be so tenderly embraced, often and often again. But this divination of the great secret, so longed for, was already clouded over by sleep. Once again, all the happenings of the past hours flitted through Edgar's mind. Once again the leaves in the book of his childhood were turned alluringly. Then the child fell asleep, and the profounder dream of his life began. You've been listening to the conclusion of Stefan Zweig's story, The Burning Secret. I hope you've enjoyed this story. Please let me have your thoughts. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfiggy, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy. Please stay safe, because you're important. All the best. (music) 